You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. My name is Jessie, and I'm one of the leaders here. I am really excited to be up here this morning um, because it marks a very important event in Hub City history. All the guys are at men's retreat right now, and they got to stay there this morning. This is the first time that they got somebody didn't have to come back and be up here and preach, so that's pretty exciting. I am less excited that they all ran away to have a weekend in the woods and left me with the passages on the Antichrist. <laughs> Doesn't seem fair. But I hope that all the guys that are there right now are had a nice, relaxing, rainy weekend. Um, yeah. So last week, Steve taught on the first part of 1 John 2, uh, well, 12 through 17. And if you haven't watched it yet, go and watch it. Uh, he set up very nicely what we will be talking on today. And I especially loved his observations on kaleidoscope brain versus Lego brain. Um, I do not have a Lego brain at all. My brain is full-on kaleidoscope. And when he said that, I don't think I've ever loved my brain more than thinking about it as that beautiful picture of chaos and order. And yeah, I just love it. I also love that each of us have different brains and that even though this, some people find this book hard because it's circular. Some people just think it's wonderful. And we all get to teach each other how my Lego brain and your kaleidoscope brain, but the opposite, can like work together and get something more full and robust from this passage. So I particularly love that. Okay, so let's start this morning by reviewing what we know so far about 1 John. Steve talked last week about how circular 1 John in. It feels like a piece of poetry to me where there's like a particular refrain and that refrain keeps repeating itself but adds a level of depth and complexity each time we come back to it. So thus far in the book of 1 John, John has been making a series of comparisons. We have light versus darkness, loving your brothers versus hating your brothers, truth versus lies, and abiding in Christ versus not abiding. We will continue with more comparisons in today's passage, but first let's review verses 15 through 17 from last week that we talked about but set up really nicely what we're doing today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So these are comparisons regarding where we put our love and attention. And here we've been set up with all this information about how we should live. And truthfully, it might sound a little daunting. You may be left kind of reeling with this feeling of like, 
Am I living in light or darkness? Am I abiding or am I not abiding? Am I speaking truth or am I speaking lies? How can I be better so that I know I'm not living in the flesh? These are all fair questions, and today's passage will provide the answer to that by adding another extreme comparison, Christ versus Antichrist. But before we dig too much more into the Antichrist, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are, for revealing your word to us, and that we can all sit under these words that are so old and still continue to learn more about you through them. I just pray that all of our hearts are changed and transformed by what we learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's reread verses 18 through 23. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the fa- who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Admittedly, this is a little bit weird at first glance. It's that last hour, and the Antichrist is coming, and now they have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. It sounds a little crazy, and it's easy to picture some extremist with a hand-painted sign on the edge of a street corner yelling, it's the end of the world. But because I think in literature, really, this is just Lord of the Rings talk. (laughs) Jesus has come and has gone, and now we've officially entered the last age. Like Frodo, when he threw the ring into the pits of Mordor, left the third age and entered into the fourth age. That's all it is. It's just a marking of time to, of significant events to categorize time. The first age was the waiting for the Messiah. The second age is the Messiah has come and he has died and he has gone. And now we get to enter the last age. We reside here in the tension of the already and the not yet. We have the privilege of knowing that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh. He died for us. He rose again because death could not contain him. And he will come back and bring us to him. Like that being the actual last age. So that's all the stuff about the age. What about verse 19? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So we've talked a lot about this letter and who it's written to. It's for a group of a new church in Ephesus. And it's meant to be an encouraging letter to a new group of believers in early church. And as they're in these beginning stages of trying to figure out what it means to be a follower and who it means to be 
in their cultural age and what that looks like. And John here is telling them that there will be people out there who are not really believers. And he follows it up with how to respond to them. This passage reminds me of Matthew 7, where Jesus also warns his followers about false teachers and how to identify them. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. There will be false teachers out there, people who are inauthentic in their faith, and especially when something is new, they're just attracted by the novelty of something. But they will leave when that novelty wears out. You will recognize them by their fruits. In the case of 1 John, you might just recognize them by the fact that they laughed. And this is not meaning the church at large. I mean, this is meaning a church at large, not an individual congregation. If somebody here walks away and goes down to a church down the street, that does not mean they are no longer believers. What I think is important to note in this passage is John's calmness in the face of these people leaving. He's not telling the people of, first, of Ephesus who he's writing these letters to, to panic. He's not telling them to try and root out all those leavers or even to try and bring them back into the folds. Because the truth is, none of that is under their control. It's God who's completely responsible for their hearts. What John is saying here is simply, their faith was not authentic. And we can tell because they're not here anymore. So not the good stuff, the Antichrist. What does any of this have to do with the Antichrist? We'll get to that, but I'll be honest, I actually had a really good time researching the Antichrist this week. I thought it was really fascinating, and I won't go into as much depth as I could, but if you're interested, Google it. There's some interesting things out there. The biggest thing I want you to take away is that what most of us think of when we think of the Antichrist is not even remotely close to what John is referring to here. Pretty much what happened is that in the like Middle Ages, some people took some biblical concepts from Daniel and from Revelation and all over the Bible because we know that Satan exists and there's big bad evil out there, but they took this word antichrist and they made that the label for what we think of as the antichrist. Antichrist is not even found in the book of Revelation where there's all the talk of the beast and the enemy of Jesus. And particularly interesting to know if first, if John, the same John wrote 1st and 2nd John, which is where the Antichrist word is found, and also wrote Revelation. It seems like if the Mark of the Beast talk was the same, the same author would have put the same word for it. So we know that that's not what he's talking about here. 
Usually, we think of the Antichrist as being that big capital T, capital A, bad guy, who is the beast that everyone has the mark of and will write 666 on all of our foreheads and implant our credit cards into our arms. There have been a lot of political leaders and even popes who have been accused of being the Antichrist. But in the Middle Ages, some guys expanded on these concepts and came up this, this big story of the Antichrist and that he'll be a portent of the end and that he's everything Jesus is not. He has a origin story where he's exactly the opposite of everything Jesus is to the extent of like he will be um, born of a prostitute instead of a virgin and he will be well-liked and well-loved and live, grow up in a big city instead of in Podunk, Nazareth. If you want to read more about this, you can read the biography, The Antichrist, by Adso Montier and Durer, published in 950 AD. But again, the purpose is today, I want you to hear that that idea of the Antichrist is not what John is referring to. Antichrist literally just means against Christ. I keep trying to come up with different examples of anti, but I can only come up with antifreeze, which works still. Antifreeze keeps things from freezing. Antichrist keeps things from people from Christ. One commentary I read said this Antichrist means an opponent of Christ, not a replacement for, which is often what we think of. This Antichrist is in no way a political figure or even one particular person. It's anyone who is against Christ. A couple commentaries I read suggested that the reason this term is used is partially due to a play on words. In verse 20, John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you'll have all knowledge. This word anointed in Greek is chrisma, which has the same root word as Christ, and literally translated means to rub on like an anointing. In the Old Testament, people were anointed when they became priests or kings or the temple, like any time something was to be a representative of God to his people. Jesus was anointed before he was crucified and is the capital A anointed one, the last and best priest, king, and sacrifice. John tells us in verse 20 that we have been anointed by the Holy One, Christ the anointed. But if you are not anointed by the Holy One, you are anointed by the opposite, the Antichrist. Hence the same root Greek verb. This either-or concept is supported by Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 30, when he's talking to the Pharisees after a miracle he performed, and they accuse him of being able to do these miracles only because he's from the evil one. And he refutes them and then says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You are either with Christ or not. You are either anointed by and with the Spirit, or you are anointed by the Antichrist. This feels harsh in our current climate, and we've all heard that, but what if someone is really good arguments? 
But this teaching is very, very simple. You are either with him or you are against him. And the good news is he gives us that choice. He gives us the choice on which side we want to be on. John continues on in verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This is the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah, God's Son and our plan for redemption. The perfect, spotless Lamb who is fully God and yet embodied himself into this imperfect, broken world in order to love us and save us. There is no lie in this truth. All of the believers in John's letter know this as truth, and those who deny this truth are anti-Christ. Verse 23 says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And the NIV version of this says that the word confess is synonymous with acknowledge. So here we have laid out in very clear, undeniable terms what the Antichrist is. Not some hideous monster twiddling his thumbs while laughing maniacally, waiting for end times so he can devour and destroy and tattoo our foreheads. The Antichrist is anyone among us who does not, as Paul says in Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. John explains in verse 19 that these antichrists are people that we thought were among us. They were maybe people in your church or in your community who were saying all the right things and you thought that they were believers, but Christ could see their heart and eventually they separated from us. So we could see from their fruits that they were not of God. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Keep in mind, this is specifically about people's individual relationship with Jesus. John never says what to do about the people who left. It's not about pointing fingers or laying blame. It's about an acknowledgement of doctrine, and it's really, really easy. This is coming back to John's comparisons he's been using this whole book. You are in light or you are in darkness. You are with Christ or you are against Christ. There is nothing in these verses that says, if you believe baptism is full submersion versus sprinkling, you're the Antichrist. Or if you worship standing up or with your hands laid up in the air, you're the Antichrist. Or if your fruit tree is more pro prolific than another's fruit tree or anything else that people and churches can get so distracted by. It's whether or not you recognize Jesus as God's son and the savior. That's it.
Antichrist talk is sometimes difficult because it's been used inappropriately for, well, since we saw 950 AD, a really, really long time. But if you really read this passage, it's not meant to trigger fear or suspicion. There is no part of this passage that says, here are three things to identify the Antichrist and avoid being like that. This passage is meant to be an encouraging word of assurance to the people who are anointed with Christ, not to help you point fingers at who is not. Those people left. They walked away. But you are here, and you are not here alone. If you acknowledge the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit and believe in that, then you have been given all knowledge of what you need to know. You don't need to worry if you are saved or not. You don't need to worry if you are doing all the things right. It doesn't say anything here about how you should dress to make sure you're not being lumped in those, with those antichrists over there, or what music is okay to listen to, or even about what political views you hold. It says, because the Holy One has come and taught you everything you need to know, that there's no new information. It's the same as it's always been from the beginning. Verses 24 through 27. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So what is this beginning that John is referring to? Well, I say we start at the very beginning. God made the whole world and everything in it so that he could commune with us, abide with us, live with us, and it was good. And Adam and Eve talked with God and had relationship with him, and everything was good. But because God loved his people so much, he gave them a choice and free will. And Adam and Eve took that choice and broke their relationship with him and chose to be anointed with something other than God's anointing and therefore went out from God's presence. But God loved his people so much that he created a rescue plan from the very beginning, and he gave them every opportunity to come back to him. And not just that, he actively participated in life with them, pursuing them, seeking after them so that they would want to be with him. He sent his spirit to dwell with them in their synagogues and to lead them in the desert until finally he sent his son to embody himself, to be as present in the flesh as he was in his spirit and in the mind of his people. And that body was allowed to be broken and tortured as the fulfillment of God's rescue plan. He took all our brokenness and made it complete, and then he anointed each of us with the power of the Holy One, so that the Holy One could abide with us. 
in our bodies, in our minds, and in our souls. This is what John is referring to in verses 24 and 25 when he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And the result of this is eternal life. This is the life-altering truth that anoints us and sets us apart and is true and is not a lie. And when you let this truth settle into your soul, when you know it and let the Holy One speak these truths to you daily, you don't need anything else. This is the gospel message and it's everything. This whole letter is meant to be an assurance to his fellow believers that they can have confidence in this gospel message, that they are equipped in their faith, that they have everything they need to continue on in their mission. Part of this section of the letter is addressing the false teachers that were living life closely with these believers. It would have been confusing to be at the threshold of this seemingly new religion. People are converting all over this place and all these people are popping up saying they know the truth. And John is assuring them here that this isn't a new religion. This is the same beliefs that God has told them from the very beginning. The whole entire Bible points to this plan so it can be trusted and will reinforce and confirm itself. But we should be aware that there are false teachers out there. Jesus tells us that there are wolves in sheep's clothing that will come and kill and destroy, so we need to be diligent. We know from Ephesians to put on the full armor of God and to be prepared, but in this language in 1 John, shed some light on a more full explanation of what sort of preparation this looks like. It doesn't mean going around hunting and rooting out all the antichrists. Instead, it's an admonishment to spend more time with God so that we can recognize him when we see him and we can recognize who is not of him when we see that. Putting on the full armor of God doesn't mean just being diligent and prepared for false teachers. It's an example of what abiding in Christ actually looks like. Let's look at this passage in Ephesians 6, the full armor of God passage, and see what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. When this passage in Ephesians is looked at in relation with 1 John, it just has such a more robust meaning. This is not about weaponizing your relationship with Jesus or being prepared to vanquish your enemies at all times. 
It says we're to be ready with a gospel of peace, not warfare. This image, this is what abiding with God looks like. It looks like you intentionally taking God with you wherever you go, like you would your clothes. Standing firm in your faith because it's so deeply rooted in him. That sword image. Let's go back to Lord of the Rings for a minute and think of Aragorn. That sword was not just his weapon. It was an extension of who he was. It was his identity. And he was so familiar with it, he could wield it without even consciously knowing what he was doing. It was with him always when he slept, when he was awake, when he was woken up in the middle of the night, he could pull that thing out without thinking about what he was doing. He could use that sword for defense or offense. He used it for protection for those that he loved. Also an important thing to note about swordsmen, none of them are born being fantastic swordsmen. They have to practice. And part of that practice is by using that weapon all of the time, by immersing themselves in sword play in order to be adept enough to use it in battle. This is what the word of God should be to us, an extension of ourselves that operates with fluidity and grace because we immerse ourselves in it. We cannot expect to abide with Christ if we don't spend an intentionally set apart time learning about him and being with him. We've been given the Bible so we can open its pages and see see the real true accounts of people who interacted with Jesus and God through hundreds of years of history. This passage in Ephesians also tells us to pray at all times. We cannot remain in any relationship with people if we don't talk with them. And that's not talking at them, that's talking and listening with them. It sounds so Christian-y to say, read your Bible and pray more. But maybe that's the point. That's the most Christian-y thing you can do. And they are really important things. But not because you need to check off some good Christian box, but because you want to have a relationship with God. Because here's the deal. He desperately wants one with you. He wants to sit and listen to you and to be a part of your life. He wants to be the solid rock that you have your feet planted on and for you to be equipped with all you need for this life. You have the helmet of salvation on your head and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith that turns away all flaming darts. All of this is at your disposal, not because of a single thing any of you have done, but because the light that conquers darkness has given these things to you as free gifts. To abide in Christ means that you've been given everything you need to be in relationship with Christ. And that's the antidote to the Antichrist. You don't have to worry about being led astray by false teachers because you know the truth so well. It's belted to you, remember. You can't be fooled by imposters. This makes me think of when I was in high school and we would play the uh, let's see if they know it's not me game back when like IMs and landlines were a thing. 
I would go on my friend's IM chat and I would pretend I was her. And it was always a testament to how well they knew her by how long it took them to figure out I wasn't her. Or when my mom would call the house phone and my sisters and I would try and say as few words as possible and see if she could tell. And it was triumphant if we could get more than a couple words out because my mom knew our voice better than anybody. This is what our relationship with God should be like. That we know him so well that when somebody says something that's not of him, we can say that's not God because we can identify it because we know him in our hearts and we have the whole Bible to help confirm this. This is what abiding is. Abiding is living with, dwelling, remaining. It is a security and a promise. John 15, four through five says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When you abide in this kind of love, you cannot be deceived by false teachers because the Holy Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And you know him so well that you have no need for anyone to teach you. And the result of this abiding is confidence and joy and eternal life. You have no need for other truths because it doesn't get better than this truth. This gospel message is complete and robust and everything. Real quick clarification. When John says you have no need for teachers, he's not saying that everyone should study on their own and have their own truths and learnings. We see throughout scriptures that the gathering together of God's people is an intricate and important factor in the life of the church. John is, in fact, teaching in this letter. We know that teaching is one of the spiritual gifts, and like uh, Steve said, we have Lego brains and kaleidoscope brains, so we can learn from each other, and that's important. But it means that the Holy One should always be the voice in your head with which you rule all of their teachings. The voice of God will never contradict itself, and we have the Bible to weigh the voices that we hear. As we wrap up today, let's review what we know. We are in the last age. There are antichrists among us, but we don't have to worry about them because we are anointed with the Holy One who has loved us and carried us from the beginning, and he is with us now. When we abide with him, he will continue to take care of us and we can rest in the confidence and knowledge that he will teach us and equip us with everything we need to know. And the result of all of this is found in the end of this chapter two. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We see this term of endearment used again by John, little children. And he's reminding them again, abide in him, remain in him. 
There's no shame with him or lack of confidence. He is righteousness himself. And yet when you abide in him, your unrighteousness is washed away so that you can hold your head up high and stand firm. Because the Lord of all creation, light and life itself, gave up his throne in heaven to come down and put on this flesh and then let that flesh be broken. But that wasn't the end of the story. He rose from the dead and went back up to be with his father in heaven. But that wasn't the end of the story either. And truly, if the story ended there, that would still be a really good story. But instead, he sent his spirit to come down here to be with us so that we could abide in him and he could abide in us. How does this message resonate with you? Do you feel that peace and assurance? Or do you feel anxiety and fear? If there's any part of you that feels uncertainty or fear, come talk to one of the leaders here. Fill out a gray card to meet with one of us. Ask questions, let us pray over you. Because John's message here is one of peace and love and assurance because that has been God's message from the beginning. And that message is true and is not a lie. Today is the day on the church calendar that churches around the world are celebrating the day of Pentecost, the day that Jesus' followers were universally anointed with the Holy Spirit so that abiding could happen. So I'm going to end us today in praying over all of us, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. And as you respond today, let the magnitude of that gift fill you. If you have been anointed with Christ, you have nothing to fear and everything to gain. So come to the tables today and remember the body that was broken for you. The blood that was spilled and how that wasn't the end of the story. Lift up your voices in praise for the God who conquers darkness and because your hearts are glad and let your tongues rejoice. And finally, you can give this morning in remembrance of the Father who first gave to you. This is from Acts 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Amen.